Hi, I'm Louisa Boa-Taylor, and this is Future Food, where food trends and new technologies converge. There is a systemic change occurring in our food system. In this podcast, we speak to entrepreneurs, investors, chefs, farmers, and others defining that future. Hi, everyone. It's Danielle. Hi, everyone. This is Louisa. And we just wrapped up our third Future Food News Review, where we were discussing some of the top news stories from the week. What did we talk about today, Louisa? Yeah, there was so many different things. So one of the hotly debated topics was about CRISPR-edited tomatoes. People were wondering, what is the use for CRISPR? Why do we need that in tomatoes? So that was really interesting. We also talked about, is the world ready for vegan cheese? What do you think, Danielle? I think the world is ready for a delicious vegan cheese. I think it's so funny because, you know, I've worked with a lot of food, big food companies and the vegan cheese is like the white whale of the, of the food world, right? Like you have so many people who would go vegan if it were not, if it were for the cheese. And so I think Alicia Kennedy did this amazing, what did she say? It was 5,000 word piece for Eater that dives into all aspects of cheese. So that was great. We also talked about the news from Impossible. So it's not from Impossible, but their Reuters is reporting that Impossible is looking to do a $10 billion IPO through a SPAC in the next 12 months, which is pretty big news. That's a very high valuation. Yeah, absolutely. It was up from the last reported valuation was 4 billion, a huge jump from that. Another article we covered was that Squarespace, the website that helps build websites for companies has acquired Top, a reservation, restaurant reservation platform, which is really interesting for about $400 million. So quite a big deal. So we dug in there. We talked about solar panels on farms. Yeah, that was kind of quirky. So there's something called agrivoltaics where you can put solar panels on farmland and actually grow produce underneath them and it makes them more productive. We had a discussion about bottled water, sustainability and the Kardashians. And also Sarah Mock talked to us about agriculture and how we've romanticized the history of agriculture and what it, and actually how we should have a more nuanced view of around the the racial issues of that history that romantic history that we have of agriculture in the US. So lots to dig into. Absolutely. So the next voice you'll hear will be Danielle on the session introducing all the journalists and we hope you enjoy it. And check us out every week. Join us on Clubhouse Live. And if not, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's always really important to us to bring together a diversity of people, ideas, voices. And we are always reaching out to different journalists. If you have people who you think should be a part of this conversation, if you want to be a part of this conversation, please feel free to reach out to either uh, Louisa or I, and we would love to include you. We have a phenomenal group today, and I'm just going to tell you a little bit about the format, and then I'll introduce everyone. What we're going to be doing is each journalist is going to be presenting their um, stories, and then we're going to have a discussion among everyone on stage of the stories. And we're, again, this is meant to be a diverse, nuanced conversation. We're meant to dig in, be provocative, 
Um, and now it's my pleasure to introduce all of our wonderful speakers, journalists. So we have Alicia, welcome. Alicia, who just popped in the bottom, who is going to be talking about a story that she did for Eater, but she's also the desk of Alicia Kennedy. And she's also working on a book about eating ethically for Beacon Press. We have Elaine Watson, who is a contributor to Food Navigator. Joe Fassler, who is a contributor to The Counter. Larissa Zimmeroff, who is a contributor to Bloomberg, and she's also publishing a book called Technically Food, Inside Silicon Valley's Mission to Change What We Eat, which is out on June 1st. We have Donnelly Figuera, who is the uh, founder and editor of Green Queen Media. Jimena Bustello from Politico. Sarah Mock, who is the author of Farm and Other F-Words, and she's also a freelance writer and researcher covering rural issues and agriculture. Kristen Howley who is the author of the Expedite Newsletter, a weekly newsletter providing news and intelligent insight into the future of the restaurant industry. She's also a freelance contributor to Eater, Food & Wine, Business Insider, and more. Megan Poinsky, who is a contributor to Food Dive, and Errol Schweitzer, who is the founder of the Checkout Podcast and Forbes. So we're about to jump into the discussion, but before we do, all of these uh, journalists are fantastic. Please follow them on Twitter, subscribe to their newsletters, support them, buy their books. And with that, let's jump into the conversation. So our first story, we're going to hear from Joe. Um, Joe Fassler is going to be talking to us about agrivoltaics and putting solar panels on farmland. So Joe, you want to tell us about the story? Sure. And just because this is my first time, should I put the link in the chat or people have it? I'll put the link in the chat for you. Cool. Okay, great. Cool. So yeah, so we did the story, I think last week, about the emerging science of agrivoltaics, which is a fancy term for a simple idea. It basically just means putting solar panels over farmland. And the reason for doing that is because really interesting things, it turns out, start to happen just with this sort of synergy between the two. It kind of starts with the panels themselves. Research shows that well, solar panels, you put them out directly in sun. They can really overheat, you know, even though their whole purpose is to absorb heat and turn it or absorb sunlight and turn it into energy. And so it turns out they actually perform better. They can be like 3% more efficient if you put plants under them uh, because plants, they uh, essentially exhale you know, for lack of a better world, their um, oxygen, and that cools down the panels. But the really interesting thing is that crops start to grow differently too sometimes when they have panels over them, and sometimes much more efficiently. So the main character in this story is a guy named Greg Baron Gafford, who works at, uh, he's a University of Arizona biogeographer, who works at Biosphere 2, that sort of famed research facility where they study habitats and, and how food production and things might work on other planets. But his work is focused on how we might live more efficiently on this one. And he has an experimental garden there that's covered in solar panels sort of over it. They throw shade down onto the crops. And in his 2019 study, he found that just by virtue of having the panels overhead, tomato production doubled with 65% more water efficiency. Um, that's because, you know, the water doesn't dry out as quickly in the hot Arizona sun. Pepper production tripled. And though jalapeno, uh, yeah, one variety of pepper, and then jalapeno pepper production was static, but the water efficiency was 150% greater. So a win for a region embroiled in historic drought and really kind of eye-popping 
numbers. The thing, though, is that those results are not consistent everywhere and not with every crop. Uh, some plants like partial shade, some don't. Some regions are hotter than others, right, and don't have the kind of overwhelming sun that, uh, you know, 300 days a year that Arizona has. So there's this kind of race now among scientists and producers and, you know, all kinds of stakeholders to find out, you know, what grows better where with solar panels overhead. But it doesn't need to work everywhere for this to be a transformative solution. One sort of stat from the story that comes out of research that I found astonishing was that if 1% of global cropland adopted solar panels, it would more than offset the entire world's energy demand, which I just found to be like really crazy. Of course, we can't just do that, right? I mean, that, that is a good thing because as we start to use more and more renewable energy, we're going to need to put these panels somewhere. So it's great that, you know, farmland is such an obvious choice, but it's not necessarily going to be easy. Um, first of all, it's not going to work as well in every place. So we still need to do more research to find out where does this approach actually make sense and with what kinds of agriculture. The financing is really high. The startup costs are really high, and that's a challenge for farmers. There's also a lack of infrastructure, right? You can't just have solar panels on your farm and have that deliver energy. You need to be sort of connected to the grid, and a lot of that just doesn't really exist and may not necessarily be a priority. These are just, you know, some of the issues. And and one sort of, just to end on a sort of positive note, one of the interesting things that's starting to happen is it's sort of less that food producers are getting into solar at the moment as much as solar farmers are starting to produce food. And that makes sense for a number of reasons. First of all, they already have their farms, right? And they're in the energy business. They understand that. But there's increasing interest in like having food production or even just growing perennial grasses and things that are good for pollinators there. And so it is turning into a solution that is creating some more sort of farm income for producers. So one thing that's happening is people are, you know, they'll bring their sheep and they'll great, you know, you got to kind of mow the grass if you're, if you're growing perennial grasses under solar panels. So uh, these solar farmers can pay wool producers or meat producers to bring their animals in and graze. And certainly it's going to require sort of more agricultural knowledge to be part of the energy industry. So that's good too. I would argue. So really interesting stuff. That's kind of my overview of the story. And with that, I guess we could go to discussion. Have, have people heard of this? Is this a new concept to folks? Yeah, uh, yeah thanks so much, Joe. No, I haven't heard of this. Yeah, I'm wondering, you know, what is the next step? You know, how scalable can this be? How many panels do farmers need to put down to, you know, make this worthwhile? Right. I think it's... Again, like in the in the scale of global farmland, it's a, it's sort of a minuscule percentage. But I think for any individual farmer, it would be like a huge investment and a big undertaking if it's not something you do already. And certainly, you know, to an extent, you're starting to see like cranberry farmers in Massachusetts are really interested in doing this, in part because cranberries are are basically worthless <laughs> because they're so overproduced. So they're thinking, okay, maybe we can keep, you know making cranberries if we are getting money from solar, but it's not necessarily the best region for it for a lot of reasons. I mean, Massachusetts can be gray and it's not necessarily a good fit just from an agricultural perspective. So when you combine that with the fact that people don't really know what's going to happen with the price of solar, and it's really, if you're looking at it as like taking out a mortgage on a house or something, it's really hard to project what the return on that huge upfront cost is going to be in, in 10 or 20 years. It's a really 
I, I would say that the barriers are are high for people getting into this, and it would take concerted policy solutions to try to really make this a viable thing. That said, we're in a time where we're, you know, some big, bold ideas are certainly being discussed, but it's it's not going to happen organically. Hey, it's Larissa. Joe, thanks for sharing. Um, I actually, I, I really read this with interest because I just wrote about greenhouses using quantum dot film to improve the sun's efficiency. So I feel like it's adjacent to, your, to, the, to that story. And I found that farmers are still, un, are, are still reluctant to adopt it, even though it has a lot more proof than the agrovoltaic example. Mm-hmm. That's so um, interesting. It does speak to needing subsidies or regulation to, to get to things like that, I think. Yep. I totally agree. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a pretty risky, risky bet for farmers. So next up, we have Sarah Mock, who Danielle um, introduced earlier. It's a freelancer covering rural affairs. And you had an article that you posted on your Medium channel this week unpacking a recent opinion piece published in the New York Times uh, titled My Great Grandfather Knew How to Fix Our Food System. And your story was titled, No, Your Father, Grandfather Did Not Know How to uh, Fix the Food System. So can you tell us more, Sarah? Yeah, happy to. And thanks for having me. What a prestigious lineup to get to speak on. So excited to get to know some folks here better. But yeah, I wrote in response to Gracie Olmsted's uh, recent New York Times article uh, a little bit earlier last week, I think. And the story, I guess to sum it up, is very what people maybe would expect from a story about that really glorifies like a, the 1940s depression era small family farmer that is very focused on being on community engagement and on supporting local businesses ostensibly and on environmental stewardship ostensibly and the i think the argument kind of the crux of the argument that Gracie makes in her article is that if we could just go back to the glorious 1940s, 1950s farm system that we had, then we would see a magnificent transformation in our food food and farming system and would be on the right track to making some of the drastic system-wide changes that we've been looking for. I mean, I think the article is a good unpacking of like how every bit of that is just false nostalgia which is quite funny she has a literal sentence in the story where she says this is not just false nostalgia which it 100 is i mean i think agriculture is not unique actually in the fact that like there is a big swath of people who believe that like the 1940s 1950s was an idyllic time to be an american and an ideal uh, idyllic time to be for like the american dream and for like the accessibility of wealth and social mobility for people despite the fact that that was truly only available for like white men at the time, women were being like very actively excluded from the labor force. Anyone who wasn't white was being like heartily discriminated against at the end of the uh, the world wars and during the great depression. So it just like, there is undoubtedly a lot of nostalgia there inside agriculture and outside agriculture. But in this historical moment that we are in right now uh, in 2020 and 2021, I think we've started to have a thoughtful conversation about the fact that the 40s and 50s were not this idyllic time for everyone in America and was our great grandparents and grandparents did not have like a glorious life that was, you know, had no impact. And if we could just get back there, everything would be fine. I don't see that conversation happening actively in agriculture about the fact that, you know, we, I think Michael Pollan probably made famous the idea that you're 
don't eat anything that your grandmother or great grandmother wouldn't recognize or that wouldn't be grown on your great on your great grandparents farm or something in that vein. And I think that agriculture is certainly ready. Food is certainly ready to have a conversation about the fact that lots of people's grandparents did not have a garden. They lived in urban places. They lived in tenements. They lived in low income housing. They were not making healthy food for themselves and their families because they could not afford to. Lots of poverty in America, and there always has been. Not everyone was an upper middle class white person in the 40s and 50s. Not everyone's grandparents were either. So that was kind of the like crux of my like undressing of this argument. And also just think the frustrating thing and what I would be interested to hear kind of folks' thoughts and understanding of is there is this, you know, there was a lot of language used in the article that was very, you know, like community focused and eating local and, you know, these buzzwords that are really important, I think, to the food movement still today and honoring, Gracie worked really hard in the article, to honor her grandfather as like, you know, he was the original, this is very common argument in agriculture, the original environmentalist. He cared about his land. He cared about doing things right and, you know, was like inherently virtuous in, in you know, the way he shopped and the way uh, he cared for his family and the way he cared for his land and the way he did his job. In reality, the evidence that she offered in the article didn't really actually make any of those points, but I think that is a separate discussion. I think that's not true. I, I don't know. I, a big point that I like wanted to make in writing this story was basically just like white farmers in the 40s and 50s were not the like pinnacle of modern liberal food system values. They, you know, I don't think we should be celebrating people like for buying local in the 40s because it's not like there was an alternative. They weren't doing it because like it was the right thing to do. They were doing it because it was the only possible way to do things. And I struggled with the idea that like we are in the in the food movement, in the farm movement today. When we look back at that time and like honor it and glorify it and talk about it as like the pinnacle of like our agricultural history in the United States, we are whitewashing our history and eliminating, you know, the stories of all the other people who have made major contributions and who have been the voices that have actually gotten to, you know, where where we are today, the more thoughtful conversations we're having now. And it was certainly not like white landowning farmers in Idaho who got us there. And I think it's really problematic when I see stories like this that seek to put them in that position as like leaders of a like progressive food movement, because I think that's whitewashing and deeply problematic. And yeah, and it was frustrating to see that in the New York Times going unchallenged as an idea. Right. And it's um, and this is what you're, you're so great at. Sarah is, you know, calling BS uh, in the industry. I'm very thankful for that. You know, I think, you know, I'm not an expert on American agricultural history, uh, but I do know that, you know, around the time that her great-grandfather was around was also the Dust Bowl, oh, a lot of farming practices. So I, I know you picked up on some of that. But I th- what I thought was really interesting in the article as well was you're talking about how she glosses over certain issues. So she glosses over the idea of diversity, the importance of diversity. She glosses over the idea that our food system is brittle and, you know, doesn't really dig in. And I think this is something that that does happen quite a bit in reporting in our industry. And I'd love to hear what, what other people think on this. It's a very complicated topic and often in a certain word count can be very hard to to get into. Right, exactly. Why is the food system brittle, for instance? when you're trying to make maybe another point. Uh, it doesn't mean that I don't think she should have, but I'm, I'm just intrigued what people think about how you, you approach some of these topics uh, within certain word counts, but getting deep enough to make sure that you're not glossing over in, in, a, in a negative way. 
I'll jump in here on this one, largely because I'm all here for the Idaho content. <laughs> I'm from Idaho myself, and so I kind of take whatever opportunity I can to talk more about it. A lot of people think it's in the Midwest, and it's like so not. <laughs> um, I'm totally here to talk about those rural areas, um, you know, especially now recently having moved out to D.C. But I agree with uh, a lot of what Sarah is saying in her piece. There is definitely a lot of this rom- almost like romanticization of the like 1900s in general as this great golden era. And especially in Idaho, it most definitely was not. We definitely had Japanese internment camps, horrible, awful like migrant labor treatment that continues to this day. A lot of exploitation, which, you know, Sarah has written a lot about is just like the exploitation of 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 farming in general is very prevalent within the state in and of itself. And that's often not even talked about within Idaho. So it's really easy for folks growing up there to gloss over that history that is not so far away. The idea of like community focus is definitely a buzzword that you hear a lot in Idaho, you know, buying local, buying 208, buy Boise or buy buy Idaho, like that is, is largely focused and emphasized. But I don't necessarily know that it's kind of for all of the great positive reasons that Gracie also advocates that it can be. Like, there's plenty of rural towns out there, like in Montana, in Washington, in Idaho, in Oregon, Wyoming, where if a McDonald's comes in, the local community, these itty-bitty towns, they get frustrated and they get mad. But it's not necessarily because they want to just buy local. It's because that's like now taking away business from these communities that otherwise like these businesses that otherwise wouldn't be surviving because they're already under a structure that is putting immense pressure on them. And so I think that's kind of like another thing to kind of keep in mind is these things aren't necessarily doing great. They're not necessarily thriving right now. And then they're faced with this additional kind of corporate pressure that sometimes comes in or sometimes comes out. Um, I don't know if that really like makes sense, (laughs) but I have a lot of thoughts on this as well. And that's just kind of like my blurb, but there is that mentality of like sticking to the local, but it's not, I guess it's not necessarily always that's rejuvenating as I think people make it out to sound. Yeah. I, I really agree with, with all that. This is Joe. It's, it's such an important topic to be discussing because I think so much of the conversation, the contemporary conversation around food is just suffused with nostalgia in this, in this really selective and I think damaging way. And I think the kind of modern contemporary food movement discussion, you know, starting in the mid 2000s has sort of done so much to try to sell the public on the little red farmhouse of the 1920s or whatever as being this sort of, you know, platonic ideal of, of, of food production or something that we should, we should want to return to, you know, as, as Sarah, you know, really nicely pointed out. And <laughs> one thing I'm trying to do in my reporting and we're trying to do at the counter is just elevate the voices of people who do not have those associations, right? Who were excluded from that vision when it was happening, who know a lot, not only often about the land, but about the dynamics that kind of got us into the situation that we're in and not just kind of, and making sure they're a crucial part of the conversation because they have to be, because otherwise we end up with stories like this, which really only tell one side and are very invested in some ways in the problematic status quo that we already inhabit. So it's just a great topic to be drawing attention to. And I'm, I'm really glad yeah. it's part of our 
of our conversation today. Thanks, Joe. And thanks, Sarah, for, for sharing that story and Kamena for your thoughts. And definitely a conversation that maybe we should do a dedicated session on to dive deeper into. Next, we're going to go to Larissa for a story about the first CRISPR tomato seeds. And remember to introduce yourselves so that everyone knows who's speaking. Larissa, take it away. Thanks, Danielle. Hey, everyone. This is Larissa Zimbaroff. I have a book coming out June 1st. It's called Technically Food, Inside Silicon Valley's Mission to Change What We Eat. You can find it on my website, which is my name. I also have a newsletter that goes out weekly. And the newsletter, I talked about CRISPR-edited tomatoes. Now, CRISPR is a gene editing tool used in the lab that is close to GMO, close to genetically modified, but is not considered genetically modified. Now, I found it really interesting, this article that talked about a Japanese startup that had edited a tomato, a specific tomato, a Sicilian Rouge, to be higher in GABA. GABA is an amino acid that um, you can find in supplements on Amazon. You can find lots of supplements on Amazon that include GABA, and GABA is supposed to be relaxing or help you calm down. But there, all the studies that are around GABA have it mostly unfounded or talk about it as like a placebo effect. Tomatoes also already have a lot of GABA in them. So I find it I found it very amusing that this Japanese company had decided to make a tomato that had more GABA. And they talk about it in a funny way. They say that they're they're choosing GABA because consumers are already readily familiar with it and are already buying it. And also tomatoes, they chose tomatoes because it was a nutritious way, a, a way to add more nutritious food to our diet. Now, the tomato is the most eaten fruit and vegetable, fruit or vegetable, whatever you want to call it, already in the world. It's the most produced and the most consumed. There were all these little tidbits to this story that I found really interesting, but I also appreciated that the story kind of laid bare exactly what this company was doing. So the company's goal is to make consumers familiar with CRISPR. That's the goal. The goal isn't to make us a more nutritious tomato because more GABA when a tomato already has GABA, and GABA is kind of an unfounded amino acid. Sure, a tomato is good for us, great. But to make these seeds and then to give them to home gardeners, which they're doing for free, they're purely doing it to get us familiarized and comfortable with CRISPR. That is the goal of this tomato. And the Japanese company is pretty clear about it. They're not hiding it, which I also appreciated. Um, They said they had 5,000 applicants already for the the tomato seeds. Each person gets five seeds apiece. They said they weren't commercializing it. So I just, I found this like this really wonderful example of the way food companies are of today, the food tech companies of today are tackling getting their foods into the world. Everyone talks about how prices need to come down in foods. And the reason they, w- they want to bring prices down is to get consumers to buy them, to get them used to them. These marketing tactics that are a very much a part of bringing new foods to market. And so I thought this CRISPR tomato was a wonderful example. CRISPR, just to, to, to be clear, in case you're not 100%, CRISPR basically takes a certain splice of genes from one thing and puts them into another. And they're, 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 replacing the exact same set of um, of DNA. And it's because it's the exact same set that 
the governments and regulators say it's okay. And so while GMO has to go through tons of hurdles and show data and get approvals, CRISPR does not. So it's just something to be aware of. I'm not saying pro or con against CRISPR um, or GMO, but I want to just elaborate. Anyways, I think it's a really great story. I think I was tempted to write away for the tomato seeds and the plans for the the next plans for this Japanese company. They said they said is to make other tomatoes with other nutritious nutrition nu- nutritional elements upped. So I'll be um, watching it for sure. Super interesting story, yeah. Errol. Do I do I see you take your mic off? Do you have something to yeah. share? Just a couple of quick points of clarification and full disclosure. I'm on the board of non-GMO project. I'm actually a biologist by training. Uh, CRISPR is regulated as a GMO by the European Union. And the non-GMO project, which at this point certifies over $26 billion in product to determine there's less than you know, 1% GMO content, does consider CRISPR a GMO technology. And the, the difference, just to elaborate, is that Traditional GMOs, which cover over 300 million acres of U.S. corn, soy, cotton, canola, are transgenic in that they take the GMO, the the genetic material from one organism and transplant it into another. In this case, CRISPR is cisgenic, where they're they're sort of editing and snipping and moving genes around usually. Um, Still a lot of questions about the safety and efficacy of the technology. Obviously, a lot of food advocates have a lot of concerns. And so if you were to release a GMO tomato in the U.S., non-GMO project would still consider it a GMO and would have to add it to our list of ingredients that we're uh, testing and certifying against. Likewise, like I said, the European Union, which is over 450 million consumers, already considers it a GMO. So, you know, as, as uh, the speaker was saying, it it's really is the first toe dipped in the water of a tidal wave of these technologies that are going to be hitting the food system due to the lack of regulation, the lack of oversight, um, FDA really being out to lunch or, or really bought in by, uh, by lobbyists from uh, you know, biotech. And then if you like what Silicon Valley did with food delivery, and if you like what Silicon Valley has done with fulfillment and logistics, you're going to love what they're going to do to the food system. So stay tuned. Errol, I really appreciate you, you pointing that out. Yes, um, the, the Japanese company, it, it's okay in, in Japan they can do this, and they, they have their, their sights on... Um, which is much more tightly regulated. And um, I often appreciate that it is much more tightly regulated and, and not and the U.S. I'm, I, I have concerns about the U.S., but thank you for making those points. Yeah, and I'll just add that actually it looks like Europe, the EU is going to be addressing its regulation around this um, coming up soon. Sorry, Megan, were you going to jump in? Yeah, I think that this is a really interesting story because um, I've looked a lot into just kind of where companies are going with CRISPR in the United States. Agriculture companies that both are doing crops as well as uh, doing animals, which is a completely different thing. But in terms of crops, a lot of companies have talked about how, yeah, we do have GMO crops, bioengineered crops all over the United States. But they've all had modifications done for farming ease. They haven't had changes done to make the products better for people to eat in terms of nutrition or just kind of presentation. 
Like there's a company, Pearwise, that's working on things like berries without seeds and cherries without pits because these things get in the way of people's enjoyment of the fruits. So it's interesting that there are companies coming up, like this Japanese company, that is amping up the nutrition, uh, whether it's actually really making nutritional changes is to be seen. But I feel like it is the start of a lot of kind of the future, what can be done with this technology to make things more what the consumers want. Uh, this is um, Elaine at Food Navigator USA. Yeah, I mean, um, I we've been writing about some interesting applications of CRISPR as well that I think are actually quite positive and exciting. There's an Israeli company called Exit, which we've written about, one of several looking at this challenge around all of these male chicks that are basically killed as soon as they are born because there is no market for them um, as chicken and they don't lay eggs. So they're basically born and then they're killed, which is an ethical disaster and also incredibly inefficient for the industry. So um, there are companies now looking to use CRISPR gene editing techniques to add a genetic marker to male eggs that glows when it goes through a scanner. So you can enable the sex detection of um, these eggs, you know, immediately after they're laid and before they're incubated, which means that you don't have to wait for these chicks to hatch and then, and then murder them effectively. So, you know, I think you know, every case should be looked at on a case-by-case basis, but there are some potentially quite exciting applications of this technology from an animal welfare perspective, you know, if nothing else. Yeah, absolutely. And I would also add that some of those applications you mentioned, Megan, around, you know, removing seeds and so on, you know, that's that's all been done through breeding in the past, and but over a much longer time frame. So these genetic technologies can now um, speed up what would have been a traditional breeding process too. Sorry, Larissa. That's okay. No, I, I've been reading up on that company as well, Elaine, and um, and reaching out, trying to find out like where they are because they've been at it for a very long time, and they still didn't have they didn't have any updates to share with me. But I'm I'm and I a, re, a new company recently recently got funding on the same topic, but handling it from a different way. So I think I think in the next few years we'll see something like this. And I do think from an animal welfare standpoint, it's worth worthwhile. And I also appreciated your point of it being very much case by case. I think, though, that that's not how the food system works. One example does it and then everything falls. Right. So we have rent it and now we, we're going to have everything else. Um, anyways, all real great conversation points here. Great. Thank you so much. I think, you know, we could have probably have a whole session on this topic. So maybe we should sometime. So thanks for that, Larissa. Um, okay, moving on to Sonali Figueras from Green Queen uh, Media. You have got a few different stories to talk about today, Sonali. Right? Hi, Louisa. Hi, Daniel. Hi, everyone. Always oh, such an honor to be here. I, I hope I don't sound too sleepy. There are a few stories, but I think they all kind of go together. The three stories I want to talk about are all very much related. I'll start with the reports. We we had some big reports come out in the in the plant-based and alt-protein world this week. GFI, the Good Food Institute, and Plant-Based Foods Association released a big report 
put together based on SPINS data, which showed massive growth in plant-based food sales in the United States. So the figure that they came up with is $7 billion in food sales. That's up from around $5.3 billion in 2019 and $4.9 billion in 2018, so so a, a, quite a, quite a big jump between 2019 and 2020, with the pandemic obviously being part of it. But so many other interesting things came out of of that data. Um, one of my, I mean, it's it, there's too much to get into in this overview, but it's clearly a huge sign of things to come. Something like one in five U.S. households now buys plant-based meat. 20, the seven billion represented 27 percent, I think, of of total food sales. If I if I'm getting this right, and the other thing that was interesting was that it, my favorite quote was, I believe somebody from from Spin said that today you really don't know as a re, as a supermarket who your plant based customer is because it could be anyone, and what what that shows me is that. It's transcending age and demographics, and it's transcending um, income level. I mean, obviously, there are stronger appetites in certain demographics, millennials, Gen Z, affluence areas, but it's still becoming a much broader play. You know, that pretty much goes along with what we're seeing on a, on a, on a global level. Another big report that came out was Digital Food Lab, which is a food tech uh, consultancy and media uh, based out of Paris, which covers the European food tech scene. And they, they don't just cover alternative protein, but they do this this report that they release every year on the state of European food tech. And they just released their, their 2020 numbers, uh, This and it's all about funding. And they just released it this, this week. And interestingly enough, for the first time, investments into alternative protein in Europe went up by 100 and. 68%, or maybe it's 186, but essentially it did really well. This was the first time there was such a jump into alternative proteins because a lot of the food tech investing in Europe tends to be towards like grocery delivery or uh, food delivery or other kinds or, or indoor agriculture, vertical farming. So it, this, again, trends with everything we're seeing globally, what we're seeing in Asia. There was obviously more big news this week in terms of plant-based factories in, in Asia. We had Nestle just opened a big plant-based food factory in Malaysia. We had Beyond Meat open their plant-based meat factory in China. We, we also last week had Oatly saying that they were going to open a plant in Singapore um, with, a, with, a, with a partner, with Yo's. So it's just everywhere. We're seeing downstream, upstream, consumer-wise, scale, scale, uh, supply chain-wise, plant-based is just obviously just growing and it's getting wider and in terms of who, it, who it's attracting. And of course, the, the, the biggest news, and, and I didn't know that I was going to be talking about this story until about you know two hours ago when I messaged Danielle, it, the biggest news today in, in, in the all-protein space is that Reuters uh, broke a story that Impossible Foods, you know, the I like to call them the enfant terrible of alternative protein, but they're also a serious pioneer in the space. They are looking at an IPO over the next 12 months. So I don't know if they'll, we, you know, they, the company hasn't officially commented, but sources close to the company have said that this is what's happening. Really interesting. Uh, there's quite a few facts about why that's interesting. 
they are looking at doing a SPAC, which is suddenly, and I am not a fintech an expert in any way, but suddenly seems to be the hottest vehicle to do uh, to, to to go public. My understanding is that. It's great because it allows the company to have a higher and more fixed valuation. And the big news is that Impossible is eyeing a $10 billion valuation, which is pretty big jump from the $4 billion valuation that they were apparently privately valued at in their last funding round in 2020. Interesting also that, you know, Oatly has also been rumored to be chasing a $10 billion valuation this year. Obviously, it seems like 2021 or maybe early 2022, we could have some pretty significant all protein plant-based IPOs. Uh, just Eat Just is also looking at, at, at possibly having an IPO. It's also interesting because Beyond Meat IPO'd in 2019, which is around 10 years after it was founded in 2009, and Impossible Foods is just t- turning 10 this year. Um, they they started in 2011, and and you know Impossible Foods has a lot to justify a big valuation. It has a huge IP stack. It's not just the alternative meat, which is very controversial as well as hugely successful. I mean, it's funny if you look at Google data and if you read all the the press about Impossible and and you know Pat Brown, their mercurial founder. It's really the company that has changed the conversation, and that I would argue. It's the company that made alternative proteins the food tech kind of a food tech topic. It's the company that really decided to take technology and put it into food in terms of, of alternatives to meat. I mean, that that's, that's my view. I'm sure there's debate around that. But it's just been a huge piece of news and I think very awaited and especially for all the other players in the space, if impossible, can get the exit that it that it wants, it's going to mean so much more investment flowing into plant-based meat and plant-based foods. So it's going to have a hugely a huge knock-on effect. And I think that Impossible Foods has also shown that they can do things their own way. They are obviously controversial because they use GMO soy and they have the heme ingredient which is made using a kind of fermentation technology, which obviously is what gives it that iron-rich mouthfeel. And and most people who've tried every single plant-based meat under the planet will tell you that Impossible is the winner in terms of matching meat. I know that I've seen people get fooled right in front of me and thinking they were eating meat, which I can't say happened with Beyond. So, I mean, they, they, they do have this this place in the pantheon that is very important. And obviously the IPO news is, is hugely exciting. There's a lot more to yeah. say, but I, I don't want to take up too much time. Yeah, I would. Lo- I bet there are a lot of people on this call or on the session that have response to this. I would just like to say add that I hope that next year that we do, in addition to the reports around funding, we have some reports that are actually around the environmental impact of all these companies. Because I think it's very it's exciting to see the amount of funding that's coming to the into this space, but I don't think enough is scrutiny or nuance is given to what the actual impact is. So I'm curious, I know there are a bunch of people who are writing about the alternative protein space. Alicia, I know you've been covering this quite a bit, and this is what you're writing your book on. I I wonder if you have any response for Sonali or any questions or any thoughts on the stories. Sure. I mean, yeah, we know that that these burgers have, you know, are more impactful than bean burgers, but at at this point, it doesn't seem like that really matters to anyone. (laughs) 
what matters is that it tastes like meat. You know, I'm a food writer, so I don't, I don't really think too much about, about the money beyond like how it notes, how significant these things are. Yeah. So it's interesting to hear all that, that, that impossible is doing so well. And, and my anecdotal evidence is that people like beyond more. So I I think it's going to be interesting to see what really comes out ahead in the end. Just just to be clear, I actually prefer the taste of Beyond. But what I what I've seen and I've seen data, some data around this is that it, Impossible convinces meat eaters more. And of course, they are hugely committed to to being the alternative meat for meat eaters. And I don't know if anyone saw their their new campaign this week just came out. Meat for for meat lovers. We are meat. I mean, they really they really lean in on that. Wait, can we talk about the commercials? Has everyone here seen them? Sorry, but in yes, this is yes, the reason. No, yes, <laughs> no analogy necessary. Button, they're please. so ridiculous. They're like voiced over by what sounds like you know the 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 Uber farmer from the Midwest, deep gravelly male voice, and all you're doing is looking at a grill with the burgers sizzling on them, and the the voiceover is like meat, <laughs> like sizzling meat, like that's basically the commercial. And then it ends with a hand slapping a sticker that says made from plants onto the package of impossible at the very end. And the hand is always is a, as a black person, which I, I just found kind of, you know, obvious as a use. Anyways, the commercials are just really, what did everyone think? I actually think of it more in terms of what they're trying to do with the meat lobby, because I think that we're going to see a lot. I, I truly believe we're going to see a lot more blowback about the from the meat from big meat and big dairy now that alternative proteins and plant based foods are really starting to take a cut out of their sales. And I just I, I don't know. I saw that as as a kind of war cry towards big meat, but maybe I'm just reading too much into it. That's a good point. Um, I'm sure. I'm sure they're they're trying to poke a lot of people with that commercial. I. I'm sure. Did you guys follow the the New York Times full page ads that were going back and forth between Light Life and Impossible? Yeah, and and was Plantera the other one? Anyways, I in some ways I felt that it was sort of insidery. I, I'll be curious to see how they do or what changes from the commercials. They're 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 really like it's like a commercial at the Super Bowl, right? Trying to make just a statement. It's the new Oatly. Well, just because of their funny commercial at the Super Bowl, sorry. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, I don't think Impossible has that that hipness that Oatly has, right? Because it started with the baristas in coffee shops. But Impossible and Beyond are certainly fighting to be the the everyday answer to your meat needs. I don't want to take, take over the uh, show. I, I did want to mention though quickly that Impossible also has other stuff up its sleeve, right? It has the milk that it's working on, the fish. I just, I don't think that it's just going to be about meat with them. And I, I, I know that the valuation talk may be not exactly food related specifically, but I think it is going to affect um, the food system in terms of how it's going to push funding into the space, not just in the U.S., but, but across, the, across the world. One thing that I find kind of interesting about this whole thing is how many people out there really want to put money into alternatives and can't. So, I mean, 
when I was doing research for writing about the Reuters story, I was surprised that there was actually a company that did a fundraising for an impossible IPO over the summer last year. And they raised uh, $27 million. And who knows what happened? Uh, the expectation that they said was that Impossible was going to be filing an S1 within weeks. And as far as I know, that has not yet happened. But, you know, for somebody that's interested in this space, there are very few options to invest other than just buying it at the store or in a restaurant. So if Impossible does go public, I'm sure that it will very easily uh, get what it's looking for simply because there is a public hungry for it. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, Elaine, you want to finish this up? Yeah, yeah. I, I just, what's kind of interesting to me, because I, I was following the Light Life campaign and so on, which I, I think was a bit of a PR stunt because, you know, none of these products can really be made in uh, grandma's kitchen unless you've got an industrial scale exclu- you know, extruder on your countertop. But I think that um, it's going to be interesting as this market matures and you're seeing more and more players pile in, all of the big meat companies, some of the legacy brands, um, big CPG, is to how they start kind of differentiating themselves. And some of them are kind of trying to present themselves as slightly less processed. Uh, but again, I don't know how successful that has been. And so I think nutrition is going to be the next thing. And it's interesting to me that Beyond Meat is reformulating its burger this spring. And so it's going to have... Um, I think a couple of products replacing its kind of flagship burger. Uh, one's kind of regular and one's going to be lean. But um, I think Ethan Brown said in the recent earnings call that, you know, when people grab a plant-based burger, they assume it's going to be healthier. You know, that's what the consumer research says, or at least that's the perception, you know, whether it's true or not remains to be seen. But I think that's going to be interesting to see, you know, where this market is going. I mean, there's a lot of conversations about saturated fat levels in these products and trying to, you know, replace you know, tackle that from a nutritional perspective, but also from, um, you know, a functional perspective as well. So it's going to be interesting to see as this market matures, how these players differentiate themselves and what messaging they use. So, yeah, I'm, I'm watching that space closely. Definitely. Yeah, and- okay. Oh. We're going to move along right now. So thank you to everyone. Sonali, thank you for sharing those stories to everyone's comments. Just a quick note. I am unfortunately going to have to leave in a couple of moments because I have a big client presentation, but I wanted to introduce Alicia Kennedy, who did a really wonderful deep dive into the world of vegan cheese um, that she published for Eater and would love to hear more about the story, Alicia. Hi, Danielle. Thank you so much. Yes. So I'm a food writer. I have a a newsletter from the desk of Alicia Kennedy, and I yeah just published this big 5,000 word piece on vegan cheese for Eater with which is super related to my book that I'm writing, which isn't specifically about veganism, but sort of about, you know, eating ethically in an unethical, under myriad unethical systems. And so this piece has actually been in the works for years. I think I pitched it at to Eater at the end of 2018 when they added different features editor. So, you know, the landscape, though, of vegan cheese hasn't actually changed too much in that time, which is interesting. So basically the piece is, you know, how did vegan cheese start? How did vegan, how has it evolved? Even Because as we've been discussing, people are so welcoming to impossible and beyond meat. And they're so welcoming to things like oat milk and almond milk in the past. 
But vegan cheese is the thing that is like a step too far for a lot of people. And so this piece explores kind of why that is, why is like cheese the icky thing to people and how are different vegan cheesemakers kind of coming for that icky ick factor? Um, and so I kind of proposed that there are three tiers of vegan cheese and kind of at the bottom, we have the most ubiquitous ones like Gaia and, you know, people really like Violife but, and Chow, but these are kind of all of the same tier because they are, you know, flavored pressed oils. They are not real cheese. And then at the second tier, we have um, companies like Kite Hill and Miyoko's who do like at scale do fermented nut and, and other base cheeses, but they do them at scale. They're, you know, they're not rinded. They're still, you know, pretty soft most of the time. And then when you come to the kind of top tier of, of vegan cheese, you have the artisanal level, people like Blue Heron Creamery, Rhine Cheese in New York, who are doing like, and Riverdale as well, are doing like wheels of rinded cheeses that are really, you know, different in texture. They have camembert, they have brie, they have other more interesting things. And so talk the pieces about how from the start of vegan cheese was from soy-based stuff uh, that was influenced by, you know, fermented tofu and things that were, you know, made in China to, you know, how the raw food movement in the 80s started to culture cashews in order to have something cheesy and funky. And then to now where we're seeing like this kind of cultured and fermented nut-based cheese at scale as such with Miyoko's and, and Kite Hill. And how the raw food movement kind of like pushed it along, which is interesting. And Miyoko's is everywhere. There's new move mozzarella in New York that's everywhere. And so, yeah, it's just kind of a history of vegan cheese um, uh, that goes pretty deep, I would say. Some people said too deep. And yeah, so, you know, Miyoko Schinner is, is who has Miyoko's Creamery, which is, you know, I, I think got huge investment, is available in like over 12,000 stores in the U.S., you know, she's the biggest name in, in vegan cheese for a reason. You know, her stuff is really palatable and, you know, she makes butter as well. That is like the best on the market. And so, yeah, it's just about how, you know, vegan cheese is really kind of coming into its own in the last few years. And, you know, are people ready for it as enthusiastically as they've been ready for non-dairy milk and meatless meat? But I think the answer is they are not. I, I think a lot of the cheese is really it, it's going to take a, a long time for people to kind of come around on that. But I do think that a lot of the smaller makers are doing the right thing in positioning themselves not as like the alternative to eating dairy, but as kind of a supplement to eating dairy, you know, um, just kind of a different sort of cheese that can be on your cheese board that you can have in your house that you can use and, you know, just occasionally switch it up. Uh, and so I think that's really the way to do it is to position it not as you have to go whole hog on, on giving up dairy, but to say, you know, this is something you can eat that's a little different, that's a different kind of cheese. And, but you don't have to be uh, too, you don't have to make go whole all the way to being vegan. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I agree. Vegan cheese has not necessarily been the one for me either. There's a company in uh, Stockholm called Stockholm Dreamery, and they've done like an alternative feta, but they're very, you know, he would the founder would probably kill me for saying that because they're trying not to say this is an alternative feta. They're 
trying to create a whole new experience that could be used in recipes where you might use feta, but it's not trying to exactly replicate feta. And I think that's that's quite an interesting approach as well. Sorry, Errol, I think you looked like you were about to say something. I think Kristen was first, actually. Oh, yeah, thanks. Hey, Alicia, I'm Kristen Holly. I write about restaurants. And I think that a lot of the success for some of like the bigger alternative meat companies has been in restaurants, um, especially like, you know, it's headline news if like fast food starts working with Beyond or Impossible. And I'm curious if you see a restaurant partnership future for vegan cheeses as well. Yeah, that's in the piece. You know, Numo, v- Numo Vegan in New York has had a lot of success. Holly G's was using them. Miyoko's uh, was in the process of partnering with a lot of other places. They did a, a pop-up with Melt Shop, I believe, in 2019. That was pretty successful, but I haven't seen, I mean, I'm all, I'm also a little bit detached being in Puerto Rico, not being in the US. I, I don't, I haven't seen them on, you know, anywhere else. You know, Pizza Hut is, is doing the Beyond Meat sausage, but kind of like, you know, when is Miyoko's going to be ready to be at that level um, in terms of getting mozzarella to, to these places that are open to plant-based meat? But yeah, so they're, they're definitely working on it. And I think that is going to be, as you said, where the change is. But right now, it's it's pretty siloed in kind of hipper, more urban places like Poly G Slice Shop and and Scars Pizza in New York. I know Lucali did a, an event with Numu. Numu has really been um, one of the the bigger uh, vegan mozzarellas, and I think they they've been right to focus on mozzarella because while everyone else does a mozzarella, I think doing it really well and focusing on that is such a huge game changer because of the pizza possibilities. <laughs> um, which yeah, it's definitely. Getting, getting on the pizza and doing good pizza work is, is going to be the big thing. You know, I've eaten these slices before. I don't get as much satisfaction out of them, frankly, as I do if I eat like a dairy mozzarella on a pizza. Pizza is, is just, I, I think, you know, we, there's a long way to go, but I think everyone's kind of on the road to making these work for, for the, those kinds of nostalgic foods that, that they're going to need to make it work for. Hey, this is Errol. I launched uh, Kite Hill and Daya and Miyoko's when I was at Whole Foods. And I love this article, Alicia. It's one of the few pieces that I think have captured the almost like the category management perspective and understanding different quality and price tiers and how customers are actually buying it. And I don't have the syndicated data in front of me right now, but I think it, it pretty closely reflects like customer behavior and what folks are buying and the fact that uh, vegan, you know, plant-based cheese are still a fraction of the sales of plant-based meat or plant-based, uh, you know, dairy alternate beverages. Just wanted to say thank you for for putting it together. It's a great piece, and uh, I think it, I think a lot of the folks who are actually in buying and in merchandising in the food industry would appreciate it too. I just wanted to add something quickly, which is that there was a piece. I'm sorry, I've forgotten which publication that was showing how cheese as a category, and by that I mean dairy cheese, was one of the few categories that had actually the demand and the sales had grown compared to plant-based foods. So I think it's a great. This is a great conversation because obviously cheese is just a holdout compared to the rest of the categories because people still looking for it. That's accurate, but meat sales have gone up 19% last year, too. So we, I don't think we could confound the two. Yeah, I recently did a piece on plant-based cheese, and that is what I was told by people on both sides of cheese, people who do dairy cheese and plant-based cheese, that it's the only segment of dairy that is still growing in sales, and therefore, 
it isn't necessarily an imperative for a lot of dairy companies to try to get into it. Yeah, and we just did a piece. So I, I thought Megan's piece was great, looking at you know all of the brands, and then we we just uh, did a piece, kind of talking uh, to um, Cargill and ADM that have been working on the kind of technical side, and they've got you know dedicated teams to plant based cheese because it's you know the most challenging area in uh, plant based dairy. But I, I think there are still kind of major challenges. I mean, if you want a kind of artisanal cheese that you have on a cheese board, you know some of these cultured nut products are fantastic, but you want something that's going to melt and stretch on a pizza or to make a great grilled cheese sandwich it's still these kind of starchy oil kind of combos and and even Miyoko's which has got this fantastic heritage with the cultured nut products um, you know they've been trying to sort of push more into that kind of a dire type space with their latest products with their sort of uh, cheddar products and again you've still got that kind of starch and oil combination even though they're adding some interesting proteins as well and I mean I'm most interested in some of these kind of next generation companies like change foods and new culture that aren't on the market yet that are going to be using uh, casein i.e kind of real dairy proteins produced from microbes because from a functional perspective casein is really you know the the hardest thing to replicate you know and that's before you even get onto the flavor challenges so it seems like it's still a kind of significant technical challenge um, for some of these plant-based companies. But I was just looking at the data because, um, you know, the GFI um, data we've been talking about, and it says um, sales of plant-based cheese were up 43% to 234 million in measured channels. So it's probably a bit more once you add in the, you know, the retailers that Spinners doesn't cover, but it's still a you know, fairly small market. Great. Thank you so much for for that story, um, Alicia. So we have two more stories for everyone this week. And so I'm moving on to Kristen now, who wrote a piece for your newsletter, Expedite, about Squarespace acquiring TOC for $400 million. Hi, I'm Kristen Hawley. I write about the restaurant industry and restaurant technology. So I think like one of the bigger stories of the last week is that um, Talk, the reservation service, was acquired by a website company for $400 million, which is a, a, a large amount of money for a reservation service of Talk size. So Talk started as a ticketing business. It was started by the co-owner of Alinea Group in Chicago, Brand Dining Group, and um it evolved from prepaid ticketing to then just free bookable reservations and sort of like hybrids of the two events, wineries, CEO and founder Nick Kakonis is a vocal critic of Open Table um, and really like as a as a mark of brand, like went up against Open Table. And then in the pandemic, they added very quickly a to-go offering, which many of their restaurant clients would just not have offered um, were it not for pandemic times. So that was it started as, you know, pickup only direct ordering with the restaurants. Talk took a 3% charge plus and also charged the restaurant the cost of payment processing, significantly lower than a lot of the third parties that you hear about, but still a significant expense for a restaurant, um, especially without, you know, the marketing power of an Uber or a DoorDash. Um, there's been a kind of a halo around Talk for the last year. I think uh, there was a fast company profile about a month ago that called it the startup that saved restaurants. I don't think I would agree with that. But anyway, so the comp- and within that piece, Nick Kikonis, uh basically said, like, yeah, I'm going to sell this company. I have investors to please. And that he did uh, to Squarespace, which is a company you're probably familiar with as a website tool, a tool to 
a tool for businesses and people I use it to build their own websites. What does the website company want with the reservations company? Obviously, a lot of restaurants are on Squarespace to run their restaurant websites and to be able to integrate a reservations and now takeout and delivery solution. I should add, they, they do power delivery with some delivery partners like DoorDash is really valuable, clearly very valuable to Squarespace as they paid $400 million in stock and cash. Um, Squarespace has filed its S1 confidentially to go public later this year. So Nick Kikonis, who is usually very excited to comment on anything about the restaurant industry or the reservations industry, um, isn't really talking about, about what's going on. But my guess is, you know, obviously there was never going to be a better time for this sale to happen. There was never going to be better news or talk, you know, as the restaurant industry recovers, I think that obviously takeout and delivery are going to sort of take a back seat to the in-person experience. But I think it says a lot too about the future of the reservations industry, right? And what is going to happen when people start going back to restaurants. And I'm very curious to see, you know, the sort of direct channels like talk versus, you know, open table with 50,000 restaurants around the world and a huge marketing machine how that change. So it's very, it's very interesting. And I was very shocked at the amount of money, I will say, and very interested to watch what Squarespace does. Squarespace wouldn't tell me how many restaurants they have on their platform. I'm sure that that will come at some point. And actually, it might be part of the S1 filing when it becomes public, still to be seen. Hey, Kristen, it's Larissa. I, I loved your latest newsletter. And I was surprised to see Talk Sell, but not surprised to see Talk Sell. I'm curious because you said Open Table is still the leader. It seems like people are finally okay with using multiple apps to get to the restaurant they want to. You know, I used to be like, oh, it's just going to be one person. And now it seems like everyone's fine with it. Do you have, and especially with the last year being sort of, you know, ghost towns and restaurants using, using apps other than for delivery and pickup. Did you get anything from Open Table that really showed that they were still in the lead? Like, are you, are you certain of it? In the lead in terms of, I mean, they're certainly the leader in terms of number of restaurants on the platform, indisputably. Right. But that's not, but that's not usage, right? That's not reservations made. So I'd be curious to know who sort of led 2020 in knowing that it was a very different marketplace. No, led 2020 in terms of reservations made. Usage and like, yeah, tickets bought, reservations made, pickups organized? I mean, I think it's, it would be hard to, like, Talk has 7,000 restaurants, Open Table has 50,000. I think it would be really hard for anybody to beat Open Table's number. I, no, no, I did not ask. I know for sure Talk doesn't give out that number. I think they, they've talked about how much money they've processed. Yeah. Um, and there'll probably be, I, I hope there's more info in the Squarespace F1 um, now that they will be a part of Squarespace, but there might not be. But I would be hard-pressed to believe that Open Table is not the the leader in on all fronts okay. because of its its size. But no, no, I haven't I haven't checked it out. I haven't looked. What about the idea that people are now much more comfortable using multiple apps to get to the places they want or the the night that they need? Yeah, I think that's. I mean, like Google has obviously. I think like the way that people find restaurants has changed completely. And I think there was like this this like, really interesting time when like Resi and Reserve were new on the scene, where it was like everyone was like, oh, if I open Resi, I get like the new the new hotspots. And talk is for fine dining only, and open tables for everything else. I think that the like 
that and I, I don't have recent data on this, like pandemic era data on this, but before that, you know, the trend was everybody's looking at Google or Google Maps and that's where they were finding the like the, that's where discovery was happening. And then the actual action of making the reservation was kind of like the second, the second thing. And it was like, oh well, I'll go anywhere that the restaurant tells me to go to make it. Is that what you mean? I know that a few years ago it was like, which ones have more restaurants that I want to go to? And now I toggle back and forth between the web and my phone and I'm more than happy to use different apps. And honestly, I haven't used Open Table in a very long time. So I, and they don't have the features that I look for and or that appreciate as a diner. And so, yeah, you know, I'm just curious what, what the landscape is and what the, the mood is for people. Yeah, I think. And the one, the one interesting thing about reservations is that it's hard for a restaurant to use more than one provider. And that's very different from delivery. You know, like you can sign up with all the delivery platforms. It's not zero sum. Reservations is a little bit more zero sum because reservation systems are not only for bookings, but they do table management as well and time management and all kinds of things. So it really just like, I think you would probably use open table more if more restaurants used it because they have to pick one, right? So it's, I think it's a little different than having, it, it's a little different than a delivery app that like, you know, everybody can work with DoorDash and Uber at the same time. You can't work with OpenTable and Resi at the same time. So you can work with, you know, OpenTable and Talk at the same time if you want to use Talk's takeout feature, which a lot of restaurants have done, which is very interesting. I don't, I'm, I'm super, super curious if that kind of conversion will hang on after the pandemic, depending on whether or not restaurants are choosing to continue their takeout offerings that normally wouldn't have offered takeout. And I'm also very curious if Open Tables is going to jump in with a competing product for talk to go and it's, I'd be shocked if they, if they didn't. Right. Thank you, Kristen, for such an in-depth discussion on that. Super interesting. Uh, okay. So last but not least, Elaine, you uh, pitched your story for this week. You said bottled water, sustainability, snake oil, and the Kardashians all in one article. Sounds brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought I would end uh, end with a rant because I had a rant last time. So um, this is my bottled water rant for the week. Um, the story I wanted to highlight is about this bottled water brand called Zen Water, which makes its bottles from recycled ocean-bound plastic, you know, which is fantastic because it's diverting some of this plastic from the ocean. But, but then, of course, Zen Water bottles themselves could very well end up in the ocean unless they're all recycled. So... For me, this isn't really about Zen water per se. I'm just keen to get people's take on bottled water in general because it's one of those products that you kind of when you step back and think about it, the fact that this product even exists is so crazy on so many levels. I mean, pretty much every week I get a press release about a celebrity that's invested in bottled water brands. You know, Sean Mendes is saving the planet by buying, buying flow water in a Tetra pack or the rock plugging boss or Mark Wahlberg and his aqua hydrate. And now we've got Khloe Kardashian strategically positioning bottles of Zen water in her Instagram posts. And to me, if any of these celebrities really wanted to save the planet, they'd be better off just telling us to buy a reusable bottle and keep refilling it from, from the tap. And, and that we ever sold drinking water, something that's already available on tap to most Americans, you know, in single use bottles, you know, whatever they're made out of, and then ship it all around the world. I think may one day, may one day, you know, just be viewed with utter disbelief and, you know, if it's for disaster relief or, or areas where drinking water is unsafe. And and I guess like most packaged food and beverage brands that we all write about are selling things that we, of course, could make ourselves if, if we had the time or the inclination or the technology. But 
But water to me is unique. You know, Coca-Cola doesn't come out of the tap, but water is already available on tap in every home. So if you're going to sell it, you've got to deploy some pretty creative marketing in order to persuade people to trade up. So, you know, you've got spring water, then we had purified, you know, water with electrolytes for taste and then alkaline water. And, you know, none of the companies that I've interviewed in this space provide any compelling scientific evidence that higher pH water confers any meaningful health benefit, you know, which is why none of these brands actually make any hard claims about it. They just state pH 9, whatever it is on pack, thereby implying that this is somehow significant. You know, but when this matter's been listed, their defence has been, well, it was just marketing puffery or we never actually stated it was better for you. So if there are any bottled water companies listening to my rants, you know, obviously there's science to show that adding electrolytes can improve hydration, you know, if you're replacing those lost in sweat. And I guess if you're an elite athlete or you just run a marathon, you know, anything that can give you a, a, you know, a microscopic edge is worth it. But, you know, if you're sitting at your desk right now, sipping from a bottle of Essentia, you know, all you're probably doing is wasting your money and contributing to plastic pollution. That's my weekly rant, so keen to get people's take on bottled water. Amen. <laughs> yeah, I, I completely agree. My in-laws drink bottled water. They don't like the taste of, of tap water, never have, since they moved to the UK about 50 years ago. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so they you know, always have bottled water. No, I, I mean, I completely agree. And yeah, trying to sort of make it sexy in some ways with these uh, celebrity investors and so on. I think it's um, pretty poor, poor form. I just think it's really hard for, for consumers as well to compare the different products from a sustainability perspective because all of them are presenting themselves as the most sustainable option. But it depends on what metric that you're using. I mean, Tetra Pak is interesting because as I understand it, you know, it's lighter. And then maybe if you look at its carbon footprint, it does better than some other materials but then in the US I mean where I live in in Santa Barbara California for example there's no recycling facility for Tetra Pak where I live so it just goes straight into the trash it goes to landfill you know some of the the cardboard may degrade but then you know the other components won't so it's not being recycled even if it's lighter and it has some other advantages and and similarly with this ocean-bound plastic you know that's being shipped from Thailand or wherever they're, they're collecting this stuff from and again, you know, unless those bottles are recycled, it could just end up becoming plastic waste itself. So I think it's just quite hard for consumers to compare these different products. And and I feel, you know, fundamentally, we're just being sold something <laughs> that really isn't any, any, you know, better than what comes out of the tap. And it's a hell of a lot cheaper to just, you know, turn on your tap and maybe just put it in the refrigerator if you want it to taste better or buy a water filter. Right. And, and it sounds like it's a communications piece for these bottled water companies too, to you know, talk about the type of plastic or how they can be recycled. Maybe they even need to do like an espresso situation where you have a bag that you fill up with your caps that they can then recycle to ensure that it is as sustainable as possible. I don't think we see any of them doing that, do we? I think it's it's like with a lot of things. It's like with the baby food industry. I've got a bugbear about that too because, you know, obviously a lot of these products are sold in pouches, which are very convenient and safe. You know, and they'll say, oh, you know, you can send these back to TerraCycle, you know, package them up and mail them. You know, who does that? I mean, I'm sure there are some people that do and that's great. But, you know, most mostly they go in the trash. You know, and I, and I think, you know, when you look at the, the websites of some of these companies, you'd really think that they were saving the planet when, in fact, you know, they're doing something that's fundamentally unsustainable. Yeah, absolutely. As Errol said, amen to that. So does anyone have any further comments or anything they want to share before we wrap this up? We've been very good 
time-wise. So thank you to everyone. Okay, uh, all right. It's kind of rare that um, you get any retailers that do the right thing on single-serve plastic bottles. But I think I just want to give a shout-out to New Leaf, New Seasons, Bristol Farm, Lazy Acre. I think it's E-Mart now owns them all. I think they're a Korean conglomerate. And they've decided to eliminate single-use plastic bottles in their stores. So that's a big financial decision. You know, I think that would make a huge difference if more retailers, especially at scale, did that as I think these folks have maybe a few dozen stores. So just wanted to point that out, that it's rare yeah. that a retailer actually does the right thing on single-use plastic bottles. So thanks all. Brilliant. Okay. Well, thank you so much, everyone. Thank you so much for joining. This is the Future Food News Review. We'll be back next week, same time, 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. UK time. And thank you so much to all our journalists.